Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today, and I am joined, as usual, by my favorite chemist and business partner, Dr. Nigam Aurora. Greetings, everyone. Welcome back. And joining us today, our very special guest, Anna Simons, retired rugby player, program manager at Etheridge, and a longtime natural medicine educator and advocate. Welcome back. Aloha. Aloha. <laughs> well, well, listener, we have a great show for you today. First, we're going to play a game and have some fun with three truths and a lie about canon news and political views. For our second segment, we'll discuss an article about 18 clinical trials that could make or break the future of the $100 billion psychedelics industry, first appearing uh, at businessinsider.com. And we will um, discuss that as well as for our third segment, we'll be discussing a peer-reviewed article published by a law student entitled High Risk, High Reward, Patent Laws Effects on the Medical Marijuana Industry. And we'll discuss uh, what might be the outcomes of the potential patent wars that are predicted to occur with federal legalization. All right, we'll be back with today's game. And we're back. And to start things off, we're going to have a little game to test your knowledge of recent cannabis news and political happenings. So if you've been following Marijuana Moments newsletter, you might have an advantage here. Uh, I will read four factoids, quotes, or snippets from the news, and you, the lovely panelists, will have to sniff out the falsehood. You're like cannabis truffle hounds looking for my hidden BS among one of the statements. So there are four statements. Only uh, one is false. So here we go with Canon News and political views. The first statement is, number one, the Environmental Protection Agency sent out a warning reminding its employees that federal workers are banned from using marijuana and in some cases even investing in the cannabis industry regardless of state legalization laws. So the first one, the EPA sent out a warning reminding employees that federal workers are banned from using marijuana or in some cases even investing in the cannabis industry. Number two is a quote. Is this quote perhaps the falsehood? The quote is, for all the huff and puff about marijuana reform in Congress, there's little consensus about how to proceed. The solution is simple. Deschedule, regulate, prioritize social equity, and allow the industry to light up small business across the country. So, Perhaps a politician said that, perhaps they didn't. Our third potentially true or false statement is a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board authored a column attempting to tie marijuana legalization to a decrease in violence and to a lower incidence in mass shootings in states where it is legal. And our fourth one is a quote. Did a politician say this recently? Doors, video games, marijuana, the presence of evil, and now phones. The Republican Party will literally blame anything and everything except the common denominator in every mass shooting. Guns. All right, Nigam, Anna, um, I'm happy to reread any of them again, but number one, did the EPA send out a warning reminding all employees they you know, can't use cannabis and potentially in some cases not invest in stocks? Did a politician really 
make a statement about huffing and puffing about marijuana reform in Congress and lighting up business. We did a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board publish a column um, about cannabis and a decrease in violence. Or four, did a politician talk about doors, video games, and marijuana in the presence of evil and how Republicans uh, talk about that as a cause or source or big factor in mass shootings. So those are our four choices. I will be quiet for a second to let you deliberate. There's one that kind of stands out to me. And Jayhan, I'm getting used to your trickery on these games because you got me last time. Um, there's one that stands out. It's the third one. Same. Um, and the reason is because uh, I saw this thing in the news that, and I didn't, li- it was just honestly like just so heinous to me. I didn't, I kind of like didn't read too much into it, but I saw this thing that a, uh, I believe it was Fox news host or correspondent or whatever was linking. They were trying to correlate gun violence and mass shootings to cannabis use. And then that was in like other news, like, Hey, look at this idiot on Fox yeah, yeah. news saying this. So this look, so this thing, your, your third one seems like a backwards version of that. And this seems like a classic, like Jahan trying to play games on me. Well, don't confuse, uh, you know, Laura imbecile or whatever, <laughs> Laura Ingram or whatever her name is with <laughs> the wall street journals are two different Fox news, wall street journal, different like one is one is a a satire on american society and politics and the other is a newspaper so well they do have a paywall (laughs) so i haven't read (laughs) but i was gonna say the exact same thing this one seems like opposite because also then when you think about the wall street journal tends to skew conservative and and when i say conservative i just mean small c like they're you know, slow to change. Um, or, you know, I guess you could say politically a little, although not like, they're not like hardcore right wingers, but they're, you know, on, on the right wing side of things. And it doesn't necessarily seem like they would be defending cannabis legalization, although it's possible they could be, I don't know if they, do they care about facts? I'm not sure. I don't want to pay to find out, you know, pay for their paywall, but, (laughs) 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 but that was also the one that caught my eye. As for the quotes, politicians say a lot of ridiculous stuff and it's always like very bombastic. So those could easily be made up or true. <laughs> um, You're right, right. Saying a bunch of puns about cannabis, you could be yeah, like, that's, they love that's to. par for the course at this point. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm just going to like hit some of the other, I'm going to hit the other ones just briefly, just to, just to mm-hmm. check. Right. So this EPA thing, I, I, that's believable. It's mm-hmm. silly, but I, but I, right. I believe it, you know, um, the, uh, huff and puff marijuana reform. See this one. I learned my lesson because Jay like two couple episodes ago, there was one about, there was like a similar thing. And I was like, that's too much, but it wasn't too much. So I, you know, I got to give that one third one. We already said, we think is true doors, video games, marijuana. Yeah. I mean, I've heard about this thing about the doors, you know, people blaming doors instead mm-hmm. of guns or instead of, you know, mental health issues or whatever. So I'm going to stand by it. I think the third one is, uh, is the not true one. Oh, Anna, how about you? Nigam, Nigam really is, is going for number three, the wall that street was journal. My first instinct too. But now I feel like if we chose different ones, that would be better, but. Mm. Oh, well, it, you know, there's a lot riding on this. In I terms know. Of prizes. Fame and fortune. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, let's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put all our eggs in one basket. I'm gonna go with that third right. one as well. So we're going with the falsehood being a, a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, authored a column attempting to tie marijuana legalization to a decrease in violence and to a lower incident in mass shootings in states where it is legal. So let's let's start off with the big reveal. So let's start off with. Um, you know, since there's a lot of huff and puff about stuff, let's start with number two. For all the huff and puff about marijuana reform in Congress, there's a little consensus how to proceed. Uh, let's allow the cannabis industry to light up small business across the country. And if you thought that maybe a politician would have to be lighting up something to say that, it was indeed a Democrat. Senator John Hickenlooper actually tweeted this out recently about cannabis. So number two is absolutely true. All right, let's, let's, since we, we did one quote, let's do this next quote. So number four, number four is pretty fun, right? Just doors, video games, marijuana, the presence of evil and phones. Um, and, 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 you know, talking about um, these being factors that the Republican Party likes to blame on mass shootings. So this is, might seem a little weird, but it is indeed true. Gavin Newsom tweeted this recently out to the masses. All right, so it brings it down to number one and number three. Now, let's talk about the Environmental Protection Agency. This is an agency that um, says bees are fish in terms of their protections under the <laughs> under the EPA. Um, and there's a lot of criticisms about statements they make and things they do, but this is absolutely true according to sources that the EPA has sent out warnings reminding their federal workers are banned from using state legal products even where they live, which means that you both got it right. <laughs> the Wall Street Journal actually did the opposite. You, got, you, you, you are cannabis news truffle hounds. Um, they, actually, the Wall Street Journal, a member of the editorial board, actually put an article saying the opposite, that they're trying to tie violence um, and cannabis use um, Whoopi Goldberg did respond saying uh, people who use cannabis probably can't even find their guns, but I'm not sure how helpful that is to the <laughs> argument. <laughs> All right. Wow. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for playing <laughs> along, everyone. And uh, we'll take a short break and come back with our discussion about 18 clinical trials that could make or break the psychedelics industry. Hi, this is Melissa Etheridge. I founded the Etheridge Foundation to support research into effective nature-based treatments for opioid use disorder. Learn more and join our movement at etheridgefoundation.org. And we're back. Now it's time to peruse the popular literature, exploring business and politics. Welcome to the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So recently, Business Insider published an article entitled The 18 Clinical Trials That Could Make or Break the Future of the $100 Billion Psychedelics Industry, published by um, the lead author was Catherine Schuster Bruce. And you don't have to see this for an article that's like a thousand words long, but there were like six authors. And I was like, did each of them write 200 words of the article? But this article discusses the promises of psychedelics-based drugs that could have a big hand in redefining treatments for mental health conditions and other illnesses. But first, they need to get regulatory approval. So 
Let's start out from a high level about some things to consider before we take a look at some of these crucial studies that are highlighted in articles. So I want us to start with some quick takeaways as we uh, delve deeper into this article. So uh, Nigam, why don't you take it away first? Yeah, I think, wow, quick one. So I love seeing this, uh, what Business Insider wanted to highlight. And then I think something that we'll delve into deeper later is for me as a a scientist and someone active in this industry, there's just so many questions I have. I think reading this actually brought up more questions for me personally than it did answers. And, and I'll share some of those in in a few minutes. Oh, thank you, Nigam. Um, yeah, it's, 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 for me, it's a little hard to believe there are that many studies going on, ongoing, um, in, in the level that they are. So I'm right with you with having more questions than answers about this. Uh, but Anna, so, it, you know, it seems like we, there's money, there's studies, there's different types of them going on. Um, you know, what are some, what are some things to consider? What are some gaps that, that need to be filled? Uh, well, well, like Nigam, I was very interested to see what they highlighted versus what was left out because I know that there are other, clinical trials going on that aren't highlighted here. And they said, you know, there's more than 100, but we identified 18 phase two and three trials. But they said we did include phase one trials because they typically aren't designed to show whether compounds work. But then if you actually look through the ones they highlighted, there's a couple that are phase one slash two. And so I thought that was a little um, interesting. And those are the ones you know, with Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT, which are a little bit more, uh, there are probably less studies on those versus psilocybin, ketamine, yeah. MDMA. So, um, so yeah, I think there's some, yeah, there's some, I think this is like, do the companies want to know, you know, how, like, how good are their press releases? They want to know, they want you to know that they're doing these to get investment or versus companies who are keeping their IP a little closer to their chest or nonprofits. A- absolutely. And um, so before we start picking apart some of these articles, talking about which ones we like, we don't like, or, or wherever this may go, um, I just want to set a little baseline. So, you know, before drugs become available to the public, they typically need regulatory approval. And this comes with a series of clinical studies. It's not like you just do like one study and suddenly your drugs approved. That's that's really not how, how the system works. So basically you have phase one, which are just basically to see where the compounds are safe, just as you said, Anna. And it's usually in small numbers of healthy people. Then you have phase two trials that look at some dosing and effects in small groups of people with a particular illness and monitor for side effects. And that's where and I love that you brought up like the phase one slash two, the phase two A, two B. This is where they can explore dosing and combinations before the much larger phase three study is tested with people with the conditions. And there's all these subcategories. So uh, phase one, is it safe? And it's usually small numbers of what's called healthy normals. Phase two is actually looking at dosing and effects in a small group with the particular thing they're trying to treat the outcome and also monitoring for side effects. And then phase three is like the big kahuna. All right, we're going to get lots of people with this condition. And we figured out the dosing. And so that's, again, just a, a high-level overview. Um, so, But there also still is a, hard of, a lot of hard work and rules to follow for the foreseeable future before we get psychedelic treatments routinely covered by insurance. Um, you know, Nigam, I really want to ask you, you know, I know you love talking about N numbers of studies, but... 
you know, was there any <laughs> N numbers aside, because a lot of them are small. Um, what are some of the studies that, that identified in this article that, you know, just sort of jumped out at you? Yeah. So cool. Yeah. I, I can't really talk about N numbers other than saying they're generally low. <laughs> um, I think ranging from eight to like about 200 is what I saw here. So yeah, I, I love that question just as kind of a, uh, an easy one. So I'll, I'll share some thoughts. Um, so this is in no particular order. I'm just kind of sharing. So one thing I thought was interesting, this, uh, awaken life sciences, they have two studies in here. So props to all the groups that had multiple studies and of the 18 that business insider chose, but this was a little bit of a mystery to me. The second study for awaken was use of ketamine for alcohol use disorder. And they were saying that the results of their phase two study was that there was no significant difference in the relapse rate between the ketamine and the placebo, but then they're going on to put more money into it for the phase three study. So that just made me think two things. One is of the hundred plus studies going on, why did business insider choose this one? And then what is the reason that they're proceeding with this to me, what looks like not a, a super strong result. So that's kind of one thing theme I've been thinking about. Like what is the dynamic uh, when it comes to funding uh, and expectation? Um, you know, an, another thing is some of these companies are privately held versus some of them are on the public markets versus some of them are nonprofits. So this just, you know, it's that theme that, that what is the, expectation and, and who is guiding these things and, and is the money being spent well? Um, so, so that was something that came up. Um, another kind of broad theme that I saw in here was some of these companies are using psilocybin, MDMA, you know, LSD in, in their known common molecular forms. Um, but then there are other groups that are using a modified form or even a new chemical entity or an NCE as they're called. Trip Therapeutics has like the TRP8802, right? For um, binge eating disorder, that's one. Yeah, that's one. The uh, last comment that I was going to make was that for, for kind of broad strokes is that there are some overlap here. So you think about like USONA, which is a nonprofit which has you know, openly been contesting groups like Compass patenting certain things for psilocybin treatment. USONA is doing a clinical trial for major depressive order with psilocybin. And I just wonder how that overlaps. I guess the, the third major theme that I'm saying is if you have two or three or five companies doing a similar trial uh, for similar condition and with a the same compound, it's the same question. Where, where does it go? Is it, is it a, is it a horse race? Are there going to be, you know, multiple generics on the market when we're talking about the NCEs, are there going to be multiple different proprietary compounds on the market? I think right now we really are just in the, in the milieu of it. And that's why it's so exciting and so fun to follow and so fun to be a part of, but I don't think all of these groups can win, you know? So it's, um, yeah, that, so so that was kind of a long response, but those are some of my top line 
thematic thoughts. Absolutely. It's just, it does seem like uh, Awaken, for example, is just like it, something's got to work for alcohol use disorder. So let's just try MDMA. Ketamine's already able to get it infused in different places. Let's just try that. Uh, so it's just, it's like, that's their thing. Hey, I, li- I like, I like a company that's focused. Um, one of the things that stood out for me was like, there's actually a company called Small Pharma. I thought it was at first a category of company like, oh, Small Pharma, maybe their market cap is, but it's literally there's a company called Small Pharma, um, which is doing a lot of like the DMT NCE, as, as you said, Nigam. Um, and, and some of this data is looking like it's going to be rolling out later this year, like over the summer. Um, so it could be an early Christmas for drug nerds if this clinical data is rolling out by the fall. <laughs> um, so, Anna, um, was there some of the studies that caught your eye? Were there some of the conditions or, or what What were some of the more, the I guess, the things that really resonated with you about this article? There were a few that were sort of maybe unexpected or I think more cutting edge. Um, I was interested to see Demorex doing um, an Ibogaine study for opiate withdrawal syndrome, a phase one slash two trial. And that's expected to be completed next fall. Um, but it was interesting to me to see this, this study highlighted. This is a entity of Atai, which is, you know, a big big uh, for-profit company, when I know um, that there's a an Ibogaine study for um, tapering folks off methadone that's happening in Spain right now. Um, the Etheridge Foundation gave a grant to help support the study by ICERS, which is embedded into a um, hospital addictions unit, which is, you know, a, a nonprofit. And uh, that's also an organization that really works with the biocultural aspects of um, Ibogaine. And so with, you know, the people from the area in, in uh, West Africa where Ibogaine is traditionally from. And so I would love to see something like that highlighted in here. It yeah, seems like, that, like that's further along, right? Whereas this is, and that's kind of what I meant when I said like, well, this company's got their press release out there as if they're doing something cutting edge. But in terms of the horse race, the nonprofit is actually ahead. And, you know, that's who I'm rooting for. <laughs> Isn't these um, companies that want to patent their proprietary treatment? I mean, if it can help people, great. But um, I would much rather see the the nonprofits that are that care about access and that care about, um, you know, a right relationship with the origins of these medicines. So, um, but that said too, there are some, some novel type things, you know, there was one for suicidal ideation with ketamine and we're seeing ketamine, like Nigan pointed out, there's ketamine for a bunch of things. I also see, you know, the, um, for Parkinson's dyskinesias, there's a ketamine study and those are, those are a little bit fascinating to me. Um, ketamine is a powerful substance and. I don't know how well we understand it yet, but we see that it can potentially have benefits for people. Um, So I'll be really interested to see some data and results for that. Absolutely. And um, I think um, one of the things in terms of access is also there's been a huge investment in mental health and other uh, technology services so people can 
access these. But I, but I, I kind of hear this theme you're saying is access. Like if you have a product that's grown, it tends there, there, I feel like it's a, it seems to be more accessible to the average person versus a patented novel product that you also need a thousand dollar phone to access the treatment, you know, the, the e shaman or the virtual shaman to guide you through a trip or the therapist, for example. And so, yeah, that's one of the things I worry about this too, is the people who probably have serious afflictions, um, are on the wrong side of this divide. Like they probably, one may not have enough money to pay for, um, to be enrolled in these treatments, which have, you know, cause they might have to be dealing with homelessness or, um, other serious issues in terms of getting the treatment they need. And also, again, affording the technology and staying connected and having access in that community. Um, so it would be interesting to see what technologies are also being uh, developed so that people can access these. Because, I mean, you can't really go to like a, a public library and be like, well, I'm going to have my psychedelic session on Zoom now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> they, might, they might frown upon that. Um, or. or or you might get interrupted. So I think that that is definitely an issue. So, you know, there's a lot of other things I want to give you guys just a really quick chance to chime in on anything you want before we go, you know, just to throw things out there. Um, you know, this Business Insider article, it's in the show notes. There's a link there to a tracker for studies, psychedelicalpha.com um, also has a fact sheet and, and trackers for stuff. There are psychedelic stocks and ETFs that seem to be upward, but are, but are volatile. Um, New York and California seem to be the places with the most regions, so the most activity. Yeah, I don't know. Why could this be? What do you guys think they should measure? What sort of treatment should be continued, discontinued? I don't know. Any 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 final thoughts, uh, Nigam or Anna, before we go to the next article? I actually have a few. Uh, so this, I really, I, I brought this article to the show just because I, I thought it was pretty rich. And also, here's where I'll start uh, my kind of cascade of further <laughs> comments is that um, this, you know, this whole thing, you know, we call it the, the popular science, pop science, pop lit section of the show. And we do that on purpose. And I think it's so interesting. And I want to draw back to Jehan, what you were saying about these companies are saying when, you know, for data nerds, it's going to be an exciting summer. Right. Um, so I want to go to one specific in the article. It's, uh, it's Trip Therapeutics, I believe. And I'm just going to read this. They say, The company told Insider its results will be released in real time on a patient-by-patient basis. And that's as it relates <laughs> to a phase two clinical trial for uh, uh, psilocybin-based NCE for binge eating disorder. It's a, that's a... That's so wild. Like they're going to report real time every patient by patient in the study. Um, that sounds like they just need press releases coming out the wazoo. Like every. And it's 10. So that's your get. Yeah. <laughs> Jahan, you're saying what I'm saying. So, or what I'm alluding to. Also, the the group is 10 participants. So to me, I, I could be misunderstanding, but I mean, they, they gave this quote to Business Insider, right? So. I could be misunderstanding, but to me, and Jayhan's always saying, I'm the guy in the show. We've done, you know, 30 plus episodes, every episode, every paper, every study. I'm the numbers I'm, guy. What is the, the numbers number? guy? Yeah. What is the, what is the statistical variation? You know, these are things that cannot be avoided if you studied, you know, the fundamentals like all, all of us have. Um, so anyways, what I'm getting at is what is the point of that? What does it mean to say we gave a psilocybin-like compound to one person that had a binge eating disorder 
and that one person ate more for X weeks. What does that mean? And how long will they track them, right? Like, is it just going to be for the first week? Are they going to stop tracking them as soon as they go to McDonald's? Like, what are they? <laughs> so, Jayhan, that that blends in great to my second point. And I'm really not trying to monopolize. No, no, no. But I, it's, it's a I, great I topic. Like a it's, on it's, topic. It's, it's getting me the, excited. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the thing that that blends into is exactly what you were saying. Sorry, I like wrote something on this piece of paper that's kind of sideways here. The other thing I was thinking is, is twofold. One is, Jahan, exactly what you're saying. What are the outcome measures, right? So like, um, you know, we see on the last episode, we were reviewing this thing about LSD and psilocybin comparison in the clinic. In, in the clinic. And Amber Wise said, you know, this seems kind of hard because when I was reading the study, it looks like they're giving these people LSD at eight in the morning and then they're giving them a survey every 30 minutes all day. And it's like, so... So how accurate is that? I'm not saying it's inaccurate. I'm asking how accurate is it? And it's the same thing here. So to exactly what Jahan was saying, with any of these studies, how are you monitoring it? For how long? What is your benchmark? What is your group size? What is the line, the borderline between putting out a press release for whatever reasons are downstream of that versus the efficacy of that substance? Um, okay. I actually have two more comments. Uh, second to last comment is there is an optimization in the circumstances for the groups, uh, for the people who participate in the trial. So I love what Jahan was saying. I live in San Francisco and there's a big issue with, uh, mental health, homelessness. Um, in, in these things are, you know, uh, drug abuse. We see all these things for alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder. All these things are correlated in, in our society. And I know there's some places, you know, in, in America where it seems like it's not happening in suburbia or in, in different places. But in San Francisco, you see this right next to each other, this humongous wealth and this humongous prosperity and a lot of, uh, you know, vibrance in the society. And then you see the flip side of it right next to each other. And I love what Jahan was saying. Uh, and my comment is in a lot of these studies, they exclude, um, a lot of folks in the early phase studies phase, you know, two and three who have previous mental health disorders, who have previous addiction disorders, who have all these things. So they're showing data that helps them get through the clinical trials, which you can't blame a company for doing that, but how does it apply to the population that needs it most? Right. Okay. Last comment. Um, for ibogaine, I, there's one group in here that's talking about ibogaine, but there's been some research done about potential issues with ibogaine for uh, implications in like heart valve disorders, um, and it and there may actually be a harm. So um, I'm just sharing that as like an additional layer on a layer on a layer that while yes, most psychedelic substances are um, you know relatively uh, safe compared to some other things, we shouldn't just consider psychedelics as a bucket to be the same. You know, ibogaine is very different than LSD is very different than, you know, other substances, ketamine, for example. And then we shouldn't, uh, just, you know, assume that because it's a psychedelic or because there's people doing studies or raising money or they're in business insider that 
there's no mm-hmm. risk, you know? So no, those are great points. Nigam. I think you, you, you covered a lot of the stuff that we kind of like 18, only 18 studies and why these 18 studies? Cause it, it just seems to address like, here are the 18 low hanging fruit studies. You know what I, what I hear what you're saying is like, if the site people studying psychedelics can't get these 18 studies, right, we're in serious trouble because they're not looking at the refractory hard to treat groups. It's like, um, you know, and, and they're looking at these really, it seems like, you know, a little bit of low hanging fruit. So can they make the dunk here? here here's the alley-oop. Can they dunk the ball? They're not asking them to shoot a shot blindfolded. Um, and, and I think it's also the size of the industry varies. Like if, you know, m- some people estimate it's a hundred billion dollar market. Some people say it's 35 billion. Like pharma makes some pharma companies make that much money off a single drug <laughs> versus the entire industry. So, um, I think, you know, there, there are these estimates that, that kind of define market size. And, you know, if, if federal insurance could f- support some of these and pay for some of this mental health stuff, I think the, the size of the market could grow greatly. But Anna, I wanted to just give you a chance to <laughs> maybe respond to some of Nigam, Nigam's litany of issues with this article. Oh, <laughs> I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I think we are in accord on a lot of that. Um, and, and jumping off a little further from what he said, when I look at this overall, we see a very medicalized version of psychedelics, psychedelic medicines, which as Nigam also pointed out, this is a, a wide variety of different substances that are getting categorized together. Um, but a lot of these are, I would say like most of them, the majority have origins in, um, you know, plant medicines and, and which have biocultural significance as well. And a lot of the protocols that are then used um, in medicalized settings are drawn from some of the elements, you know, from ceremonial elements, traditional elements, which again, have like a cultural basis. You could say that is um, cultural IP even, right? So it raises the question of, for me, a couple things. Number one, is this medicalized version of treatment going to work the best for people when there are other traditions that have been doing it for many years and in other ways? And then also, um, what is the correct responsibility for some of this IP that has been, um, I don't know, appropriated, you could say? Or um, yeah, And so, yeah. so that's an open question. That's why I prefer to see the, the nonprofits who are aware of those issues doing the research because I think they're offering a greater, they're offering a a greater spectrum of information and knowledge versus honing in on what they can, they think they can make the most money on. And, you know, and so, and I'm not knocking um, Western science by any means or, or those medicalized treatments, but I don't think that they're the best for everyone. And when you do look at something like Ibogaine, as Nigam pointed out, there is a cardiovascular risk if, you know, if patients are screened properly and, uh, and such, it really goes down to, you know, almost nothing, but there's an, an underground medical subculture where these treatments are happening. And this is the conundrum. How do you expand access to the most people, but of, of quality treatment, whatever that means? And does it have to be this homogenized you know, version that we agreed on based on these clinical trials, which may or may not be the most effective thing. They're just what was done. You know, so I'm in favor of expanding access to quality treatment for the most 
people and the people who need it the most with the least resources. And I don't think that these trials are necessarily the answer to that. They're maybe one piece of it. I do want to see legalization of these medicines. And I do want to see um, some safeguards for people, you know, like, for example, the ICR study, again, is embedded into a hospital. So the, the patients are, you know, as they're coming off methadone and being treated with Ibogaine, they're monitored by medical professionals the whole time, which is amazing. And so, you know, I think it can be both, but the profit motive has to leave room for that. And that's why, where we see, again, like the patents and some of those things that I think are very antisocial. Absolutely. You know, those are, are brilliant points. And and just to distill it, what, what I was kind of hearing there is the context of the treatment is so important because, you know, they say in the behavioral sciences, there's like the three P's that you need for good mental health is people, place, and a purpose. And I absolutely believe that, you know, people report like re- redefining their purpose in life from psychedelic experiences. Some people have religious or spiritual experiences. Um, but the other thing is people. The one of the big P words, one of the three P's is people. And and you know, just and then just to wrap it up, like I, I love what you said about the cultural context because in some cultures, you know, you're you're supposed to share your experience and discuss it, and that's just a common community thing to do if you're you're engaged in a culture. The the Western medicine calls that integration, where you just do it one-on-one with someone. Uh, but I think like the, the context of the therapy or the treatment or what you're trying to do, I think that needs to be, like you said, needs to be more, we need to have more definitions. Is it a group therapy? Is it one-on-one? And how can we integrate more stuff? Yeah, I just had one closing comment that um, I, I I really just love this discussion and um, the, the critiques we're offering here. But I do want to say something positive at the end that without you know these companies pursuing this stuff without business insider and these authors putting this out there uh we we wouldn't even have this to discuss right so i just want to end it on a little bit of a positive note i think everything we're saying is important but um i do appreciate everyone who's you know pushing the envelope and and being part of of this. And then, um, as you know, as we move forward together, hopefully they'll also appreciate some of the comments that, that we're making here. Yeah, absolutely. Nigam. So uh, I agree with that. I think we can all say thank you to everyone working so hard to generate this data. Like I said, hopefully it's an early Christmas for drug nerds. All right. We'll be right back with rapid fire science. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. And we're back. Now it's time for the peer-reviewed portion of the show. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, and away we go. 
This episode's peer review article is entitled High Risk, High Reward, Patent Laws Effects on the Medical Marijuana Industry, published by Haley Barnett in IEEE Potentials. You know, Barnett is a JD candidate, so we will try to keep the gloves on for this assessment of what could possibly be her first peer-reviewed article. You know, in our last episode, we dive into the basics of patents. So if you want a, a deep dive sort of in the 101 on patents and psychedelics, please check out uh, season three, episode three, entitled Agonize This, the one with the picture of a brain. So the author has a lot of cool quotes in this. Um, and in their intro- introductory paragraph, they have this really cool quote um, speaking about the cannabis industry. The author states, today, um, cannabis resides at the four-way intersection of controversy, medicine, money, and the law. And the author theorizes that the winners of the coming marijuana patent wars will control the post-prohibition market. And, and the people who might win the patent wars may not even be operating companies in the cannabis space right now in terms of like brick-and-mortar dispensaries. So let's start with a few uh, quick hits about this article. If you know they can make puns, I can make puns. So Let's talk a little bit about, you know, um, cannabis and IP issues in the United States, starting at a high level. Um, Nigam, what should we know about patents, laws, and cannabis just to kick us off? Yeah, a big takeaway for me was this um, kind of evident land grab that's occurring and some maybe lack of action at the U.S. Patent Office to recognize the prior art or to recognize what's going on in state regulated industries and has been going on. So um, that, that definitely stood out. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Definitely. And I think, um, you know, it's always wild for me to think about patent protection for a schedule one drug. I mean, I can't imagine someone being like on some court TV show someday, like he stole my crack recipe. Like I need to sue him because I, you know, so it's like, I wonder, you know, how this is going to, play out in um, a post-prohibition era when you, you know, as things move through. So, all right, Anna, um, quick takeaway from this article, and then let's open it up. uh, You can grandstand on your hemp boxes. (laughs) Well, uh, I think there's there's really two sides to consider to it, the double-edged sword, like where when a breeder has put so much work into developing special genetics, you know, that should be recognized and honored and protected, you know, to an extent. And um, because that is a lot of work and that is some people's full-time job and they're amazing at it, you know, breeders. Um, But we are also talking about a plant. And again, there's that issue of access. So when we see people, uh, or sorry, I should say companies, you know, sort of trying to corner the market Um, blocking innovation or access, um, that's when, you know, that's a big problem and when we really need to oppose that. Absolutely. And I think that that's the yin and yang of intellectual property, this balancing act between protecting innovation and allowing people to get uh, rewarded for coming up with an idea that's novel and can benefit uh, people. Uh, But then it's also you have this land grab where people just want to have lawsuits and trying sort of, like I said, someone might actually be working on it. Someone patents their idea and the patent people, you know, clerks or or officers or reviewers just don't know how to look up the information, the prior art that's out there. So I think it's, um, you know, there's definitely going to be some interesting outcomes 
Um, so, you know, Nigam, um, let's say, well, anything else jump out at you at this article? Let's go deeper. You know, one thing I thought was really interesting and that I've been tracking, I, I feel like as someone who reads, you know, the cannabis news pretty much daily, uh, I can't go a day without reading something about Thailand uh, because they've, um, you know, changed their federal laws recently. Anyone in Thailand can grow cannabis at home now. Yeah, didn't they hand out like a million plants or something? Or that was, yeah, yeah some, something like that. Um, but it's only, th- there's some interesting laws. Like it's only for medical use and then you can't, th- this could be wrong, but I think you like can't resell it with THC or something. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, disclaimer, I'm not currently doing business in Thailand. So um, <laughs> my understanding is not holistic there but one thing that i thought was really interesting uh is they were talking about how since thailand made that shift on a federal level they've been revoking or like nullifying uh patent applications that had been filed by like we're talking about this land grab right so essentially just to share and then i'll loop back to thailand to share with the listeners who aren't familiar with this already when we're talking about the land land grab it's, for example, there's a company in this article that is, you know, filed a patent for, um, you know, cannabis that has less than 3% CBD. And then there's another company. There's two companies that are arguing over um, one of them filed a patent for a high concentration cannabinoid extract in oil. And then so, you know, anyone who's familiar can tell these are like hugely broad things. Um, so, uh, I think the Thailand, so there's a lot to discuss there, but I think the Thailand thing is interesting because they are trying to my perception that I'm reading and and you all tell me if I'm getting it wrong is that they're doing that on a federal level in Thailand to protect their own market. They don't want to not have their own companies or their own, you know, federal agency, not be able to, you know, do their own version of Epidiolex or to have a strain with more than 3% CBD. So they're just saying, no, it's our federal territory. Get out of here. So I think that's, uh, I think that's a really interesting dynamic, but then in other parts of the world, and there's a bunch of highlights in this article, that's not happening. They're, you know, at least for the time being honoring these patents. So it'll be really interesting to see, like, I'll just make one more comment on this topic for now that, the thing that kept coming in my mind reading this is enforceability. So that company that, that has this patent, okay, well there's, I mean, there's so many legal operations in States now. Are, how are you going to enforce that? Are you going to go and sue every single one of these companies? And then, but then you got to think about the money and the momentum that's behind all these state operators like here's an example let's say we take the five biggest mso's in the u.s and we take all of their legal budgets and then are you gonna fight that i I guess maybe the answer is yes maybe this is like our next samsung versus apple billion dollar lawsuits about this absolutely you know people love to talk about oh oh you know how great marconi is but i think he built like um his telegraph lines using like 23 of tesla's patents so who who really is the inventor there of, of certain things, you know, so I think that's going to definitely lead to some legal issues, especially when you have these land grabs where people know there's prior art, get the patent approved anyway, 
because they want to have that shake of the dice. Even if it's like 100 to 1, they're going to lose. It still costs money. It still costs time. And if you don't have money to fight it, you you, you know you win in, in some instances um, if you are unlucky. So I think it's it's going to be really interesting. I think there would be total chaos in the U.S. if the U.S. government was like, uh, tomorrow we're legalizing cannabis and throwing out all you know prohibition era patents. I think that would be... I would be a really wild experience um, for for the cannabis industry, but um, I, I think that some of these patents will definitely have to get thrown out just as being, um, I don't want to say bad, but not really not really useful, not novel, not useful for people. Um, you know, Anna, uh, your thoughts on this this article? I mean, that was Nigam. I thought you brought up a great point about the Thailand that uh, thing. That was one of the fascinating aspects of this article and this sort of tension between, um, you know, politics and science that, um, you know, between science and the law that this article has a whole segment about was really fascinating. But, um, you know, Anna, you know, w- what are some of your thoughts um, about this article? There's, uh, there's so many great points that you both brought up. Um, there were, there were some questionable bits in here. Um, maybe there, there's a quote, um, about speaking of Thailand, fabled Thai marijuana strains, such as Northern lights could be available on the global market. Like Cuban cigars or French champagne, Thai marijuana is known for its potency and quality. So wait a minute, (laughs) Northern lights as a Thai cultivar. That's, that's not correct. That's known for, you know, that's Alaska. That's the North. Um, yeah. it's like saying, uh, <laughs> Southern comfort, the whiskey is actually grown in Alaska in the Northern part. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so that's, um, a bit of a miss, uh, mistake there. And also wasn't the reason that Thai cannabis was seen as potent, you know, cause Thai sticks were, um, you have a stick with cannabis, um, dipped in opium. So that was, strong. yeah, that was, uh, that was, uh, that's like the cultural thing. That's what I'm familiar with reading about. Um, you know, especially like the Vietnam era, People talked about that was a, a thing because, you know, there's a lot of poppy production down there as well. So it, it sounds like good marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Genetics wise, like Thailand is known to have some some traditionally classically excellent cannabis. But that's it's more one of those like has that been studied scientifically or is this just something that gets repeated? You know, it's it's lore. It's word of mouth. And and I'm not necessarily knocking that because there's good information that can be passed that way. But how much do we really know, you know, this Thailand race that's a pure sativa? Is that accurate? As we know, like indica sativa, genetic, um, genetically, things are really much more of a hybrid than anyone, you know, admits to. Um, so, I mean, so maybe there are still pure land race varieties out there that have unique um attributes. I do respect that move by the Thai government though. I respect it. That's great. Like I good for them. You know, I, I wouldn't want to let like a multinational muscle in on my, my country's, you know, plant, like agricultural and medicinal. And there's all these areas that it touches. Right. So why not, um, protect themselves? And as Nick pointed out, the potential export that they could have that is, um, that's special to them. You know, I say good for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I like what you mentioned about the the land race varieties. And I know everyone wants to 
jump onto a good brand name like Northern Lights or something like that. But I, there's got to be, you know, every place in the world is has unique properties of soil, light, and environment, which is a different creates different biodiversity sort of bottlenecks, right? And so. I think we could find something truly unique out there in Thailand. And so I think, you know, one of the things the article kind of made me concerned about was this loss of biodiversity where they might get all these patented seeds and everyone's growing the same cannabis variety because that's what they think is going to sell and what they're told people want versus producing stuff uh, that could be really unique and interesting. I mean, they're still discovering new cannabinoids and new terpenes on the plant. seems like every month someone's like, oh, we have THCP now. And then who knows? And it'll be THCX, Y, and Z after that. We like, we don't know what else there is. And I think, you know, just having a healthy number and a variety of cannabis types available to consumers, you know, and I think of like, we mentioned, you know, we mentioned poppies and, and opium. You know, imagine if uh, people were able to cultivate poppies openly. We might have like the CBD of opium, like a non-euphoric, non-intoxicating, naturally occurring opioids that were basically could be found. And that's one of the great things about cannabis is this diversity where we're just sort of really discovering how to, how to harness it. So there's great points. Um, you know, I want to open the floor up to some more stuff, you know, um, I don't know if uh, anyone else has any comments on, you know, on cannabis biodiversity about the Thailand, um, you know, patent requests uh, and there are things there, the winners of the cannabis patent wars and, and some of these other things. That's the one that I kind of want to jump in on is the, the, win, the, the future. This um, article that we reviewed was certainly interesting, but I think about to, to someone such as myself, I think about like 90% of it was stuff that I've been familiar right. with from working in the industry for several years. It's got years. a review of but, the regulations, the history in there. It's all this obligatory yeah. cannabis one-on-one stuff that's like everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but I think this thing that you just said, Jehan, about like the, the future is, is the most interesting thing that I kind of want to, to, to spend the next few minutes of the conversation on. And, um, I was just thinking, uh, as I was just sitting here listening to everyone else's comments that, I think that the heavyweights of the patent war are going to be uh, the following. I think it's going to be people who have these patents. And then if, you know, we start to see some case law that the Fed, you know, after federal legalization or otherwise in the future, the Fed is going to say, yeah, we're going to respect these prohibition era patents that were issued, which I wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't know why they wouldn't. And then, so that's going to be on one side. And then on the other side is going to be the players uh, that I mentioned, the the big MSOs, right? And then the thing that comes to my mind is that in some cases where there's these huge, you know, sweepingly broad patents, okay, like if those are enforced, that's going to be an issue for the the MSOs. Are they going to have to pay a fee? Like in a worst case scenario, I suppose. But on the more specific ones, like I think there's less of a risk for the actual operators because if you're patenting an exact genetic profile, then that's easy enough to alter right in through, um, you know, selective breeding or, or whatever. So I think there's going to be some, I'm just imagining this as like a heavyweight boxing match in the future, <laughs> you know, and saying, yeah. you know, one side is going to have, you know, 
a good uppercut and the other side is going to have a good, you know, left hook. And it's just going to be, and then we're going to have Thailand over here, which is like, you know, the thriller in Manila. Yeah. The next guy waiting to get in the ring or, or person waiting to get in the ring. So, um, but no, I think this, uh, you know, often I'll feel compelled to share thoughts or, or, you know, criticisms or insights about some of the stuff we review on the show. But in this case, I, I really would just like to say that I thought this article was just good reading for folks who are interested to learn about it, for folks who want to see some of this case law, um, you know, for people who haven't been following it for the last, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, you can get up to speed pretty quick on cannabis, the, the current state of cannabis IP with, you know, the, a quick read through this. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the more and more I read these papers, I find myself just reading the the references and abstracts, like what did they cite for this? And so this is a really cool paper in terms of it's, it's a legal document that's a peer-reviewed document, um, but it, it has a lot of good citations, links, and not just to research papers, but pulling in all these diverse sources of information. And um, it's interesting to see what happens when someone who's new to the space tries to make a distillation uh, in more ways than one. It's it's, it's interesting what they pull out of, of the mix um, uh, and sort of how things are applied. But yeah, this this idea of this post-prohibition patent war, and those are going to be the real winners. One, it's it's. I hope it's the people who have put a lot of time into the space and developed good products and good programs and all that stuff. And um, yeah, and hopefully those are the Mike Tyson's of the world. And it's like a two two round fight, and they go down quickly. Um, so so yeah. So I really hope that that the the true innovators in this space are, are rewarded for for their hard work. Um, but it will be really fascinating times with federal legalization to see how much. Uh, how bogged down the industry becomes with licensing battles for products. Like, um, you know, for example, a guy told me he patented, um, had a patent for, I don't even know if this is true or not. I didn't bother to look it up because it sounds so silly, but he was like, I patented uh, any cannabinoid dissolved in ethanol. That's my patent. And so we went around to people who make like cannabis or hemp libations and started like slapping them with cease and desist orders or paying them licensing fees. And I was like, have you heard of Sativex? You know, GW Pharmaceuticals product that and he's like, Sata what? And I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. You you go have fun with that patent <laughs> with that with this, this company who, you know, just was purchased by Jazz Pharma. So it's like you have uh you're gonna have fun with that. So I think that some of these companies are some of these people making these patents are underestimating um the opponents in the post prohibition. So I think some of these things are going to be snuffed out and and brutally quick decisions and other ones like cannabis varieties and strains is going to be more protracted simply because I don't think we have judges and regulators and, and a lot of experts in this space where they're going to be making these decisions. Um, anyway, I'm going to step off my hemp box for a moment. Anna, I don't know if you have any burning comments um, to follow up on. Well, there was this one quote that really like points to an important issue um, as more patents are granted worldwide, it's possible that growers will be increasingly dependent on seed makers that hold patents on certain types of seeds and methods used to produce them. As a result, growers will be subject to agreements and royalties and will be charged licensing fees for use of the seeds. And so you couldn't like reuse, you couldn't breed from those plants, you couldn't use seeds to grow more plants, you would have to buy new seeds each time. Um, which is, you know, some people would call that the sort of the Monsanto um, 
take or, or, you know, making plants that won't make any more seeds. So you have to buy new ones every time. Um, that's concerning because it would limit biodiversity in plants. Many, many growers also breed. They're always pheno hunting for better and novel varieties of plants in concert with nature. You get mutations, you get all these wonderful things. Um, and then you also, you have the issues around, um, number one, is that like morally right? And then everyone's dependent on those, you know? And and so you're kind of taking away, if you take away that ability to breed um, from growers, you're making them just this, uh, they're just, it's kind of like they're just carrying it out. They're just labor. They're just growing the plants, but they're not allowed to be creative and they're not allowed to work with the plants. And that's just really concerning, I think, because some of these entities do have real power and money and they are getting these overly broad patents. And I think that scares people. Um, and I think rightfully so, because, again, it's a plant. So if you do something really special with it and you get this very niche thing, sure, yeah, let's protect that for you. But do we want these monopolized agricultural industry? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people don't, especially traditional growers and and breeders and farmers, um, you know, and we don't want to stifle people and we don't want, it's scary for people to have the threat of legal action because that can cost you a lot of money, even if you're right, you know, even defending yourself and it can, can break people financially. So I think there's a lot of fear around if patent reviewers know enough to understand if something is overly broad or not. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of, I think, my favorite um, parts of the article, too, is talking about do we want a patent system that encourages consolidation and reduction of variety to enhance and maximize profits? You know, I think about potatoes, corn, soy, wheat. There, there seems to be fewer and fewer cultivars existing today than they did decades ago. And, and some people attribute this to the way the patent system works. So, you know, we, we hear, you know, so maybe there might be a way to enhance or improve the patent system or the type of patents or agreements there are to allow the plant to continue to be developed. Because who are we to say, like, this is the best plant and this is the way the plant should be? Um you know, versus, you know, what it could become in the future. We, we, you know, we don't know what terpenes it might evolve to make, what new cannabinoids it might evolve to make. All right. Well, we are nearing the end of our time. I will allow my participants one last chance going, going bong. That's our show for today. I want to thank everyone for listening in whatever format you're accessing us with all the podcasts out there. We appreciate your time and sharing this with folks you think would be interested. Please rate and share our episodes. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer, Joe Leonardo, who edits and mixes the show, as well as all the cover artists. We appreciate you. And thank you to Mark and Aurora, the sponsors of the podcast, the main sponsors. And be sure to check out our episode art, our show notes in the podcast description to links and resources, as well as our website, howtolaunchanindustry.com, where you can drop us a line. 